Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hey everybody, and welcome to the podcast, Bustle's podcast for radical body positivity, fat acceptance, and visibility for all. I'm Marie Southerd Ospina, and I'm pretty stoked to be joined by novelist Saray Walker, author of Diet Land, which was released in summer 2015. And for those of you who haven't read it, the novel does a really wonderful job at dissecting the intricacies of being fat, and particularly of being a fat woman, while simultaneously tackling everything from rape culture to sexism in the media to self-harm to the way beauty standards affect us all, really. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about all of that, as well as some reactions Saray has received for her novel, and just the realities of living in a culture that promotes quote-unquote ideal beauty. So thank you so much for joining me, Saray. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Um, And in case there are some listeners who aren't familiar with your work, was there anything you'd like to add about what you're doing? Uh, Well, Dialand actually is out in paperback next week in the USA and Canada. Um, so it'll be, you know, in a cheaper format starting this week. So that's always good. Oh, that's great. Um, what I really love about it, um, and protagonist Plum is just how universally relatable some of the experiences she has or that she's recollecting are likely for the majority of folks who grow up fat and especially in Western cultures, everything from the incessant calorie counting to the fear of letting doctors see one unclothed, particularly at the gynecologist. I feel like I had the same experience she had. (laughs) Um, You know, telling yourself that things like love and sex just aren't for you, yo-yo dieting, weight loss programs, assigning morality to food, the thin person within, just all of these things. And I'm wondering if you had a pretty good idea in mind of how you thought both fat readers and thin readers would respond to all those moments. But I knew that different groups of people would read the novel in different ways. Um, and I do think there are people who just read it as a page turner. And there are people that just read it on that level. Yes. But I was thinking about when I was writing it, you know, what would a fat person, a fat reader think? Um, and so I wanted to write something that I knew, you know, I felt like literature doesn't really deal with fatness um, in a very serious way very often. You know, we all talk about fat all the time. It's in the media, obesity epidemic, and all of these things. But in, in literature and even film and television, the experience of what it's actually like to be fat isn't really explored very much. No, um, the, all the feelings that come with it. Yeah, exactly. It's always fat people as, you know, the objects of ridicule yes. um, and, you know, just these objects of fun. So, so I wanted to try, you know, it was a daunting task, but I wanted to try and write a novel that explores, you know, what it's like to be fat. And I know there are, you know, many experiences of what it's like to be fat and there's no single, you know, fat woman's experience. But I thought that there would at least be parts of it that probably most fat people could relate to. Um, and so I, I wanted to, I thought it was important that fat people, particularly fat women could see themselves represented in literature and art. Um, because I don't think that, you know, again, there's much of that out there. And so that's one of the things that I was aware of as I was writing. To find a protagonist who 
isn't automatically just the point is to ridicule said protagonist and it's you know it's a character we see become empowered I, I think that's very rare in in literature in general still for her yeah fat, her fat characters like fat to have fat positive literature you know when I was contacting people last year before the book came out people involved in fat activism and I said, you know, this is a fat positive book. And I, I know a lot of them are like, yeah, <laughs> you know, we've been down this road before. Yeah. Um, so I really had to work hard to convince people. No, I promise this is something different because, you know, people are justifiably cynical about it. Yes. And I think when it comes to the mainstream representation we're now seeing for a lot of plus size and fat positive related coverage it's it is watered down to a degree and I think it's it's easy to be skeptical of the motives and who is this actually catering to so it makes sense (laughs) and what about you know there's so many moments that are very hard hitting in the book where we see just how severely notions of beauty standards and of you know thin being the ideal are affecting plum and affecting those around her but did you have any kind of idea of how you thought thin readers would react to all of these things, including moments where, you know, you kind of see how people use the word fat even around people who are fat in a negative way without realizing it? You know, did you hope thin readers would kind of have more awareness of of these things and of the ways so many people fat shame sometimes unknowingly? Yeah, I think there have been a couple different reactions um, from thin readers, a few different. I've had some readers who are thin who have said they could relate to everything in Plum's life, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. It's really um, interesting. You know, and I, I mean, obviously it's, you know, everyone, every woman in this culture, you know, has her body critiqued and attacked and never feels good enough. Um, but I thought it was interesting that someone who could, who's been thin their whole life could feel like they can relate to Plum. So, uh, you know, that's been an interesting response. Um, I had I had one woman who's been very thin her entire life who said, you know, until I read Dietland, I really didn't understand maybe what it would be like to be fat. You know, I I just really couldn't imagine it. And this was the first time that I'd maybe been in the inside the shoes of a fat person and could maybe experience that a little bit. Um, but then I've had thin women who want to sort of argue with me. So, for example, the scene uh, or the <laughs> chapter where Plum goes on the blind dates, right? Yes. And she goes on a series of blind dates, and the men don't know that she's fat. Yep. And, and they don't so the react men, well. Yeah. Yes, they don't <laughs> react well. And I've had several thin women say, oh, well, that would never happen. Yeah, these guys wouldn't go to her door and be so rude to her or treat her that way. Wow. And, okay. <laughs> but every fat woman I talk to is like, oh, that would definitely happen. Or maybe it's happened to them. Um, so I think that there might be some defensiveness in some way in some thin readers, perhaps, thinking you know, not understanding what it is like to be fat and how particularly men react to you very differently if you're fat than if you're thin. Most people can agree that fat is socially undesirable, but then why wouldn't logic follow that that would mean fat people would be treated very differently? <laughs> <laughs> right, it's like, why are they afraid of becoming fat then? Yeah, they, you don't you know. think things would be fat. Yeah, just... I think yeah. it's the idea of of not wanting to acknowledge perhaps that people that treat you as a thin person a positive way for being thin that they would treat a fat person the same person might treat a fat person very differently and I think that does make people uncomfortable um, and they don't like to acknowledge it yeah I wonder if there's you know a layer of recognizing our privileges makes us uncomfortable sometimes you know to to kind of admit to oneself that even if you go through 
a lot of these body image insecurities, there's a level to marginalization. And, you know, if you're, if you're fat, you're very likely going to be subject to more marginalization than if you're thin. And if you're a fat woman of color, you're probably going to be subject to more marginalization than a fat white woman. And I think people are quite frightened sometimes of, of even acknowledging those things. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it's just being confronted with that and, and not wanting to think about the ways that, you know, a particular person is privileged in their everyday life. Yeah. Um, I know that you mentioned you did part of your PhD research on the construction of normative, normative femininity of the body, which I find fascinating. It's kind of like a, a loaded, a loaded little term construction of normative femininity of the body. But what is, what does that mean to you? When I first started thinking about fatness, fat in a critical way. One of the questions I was thinking about was why are fat women so hated? Um, because that's not an easy question to answer. There isn't one simple answer to it. Um, but, you know, if we look throughout time, for example, you look at the 20th century, you can see that the idealized body shape shifts and changes over time. Um, even though now we've been in a period since I would say the 60, the mid, you know, 60s where it's just been thin, 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 and it gets kind of worse. The era of Twiggy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It hasn't, it hasn't stopped. No. <laughs> um, but I think that, um, you know, at any given time, there's a particular type of female body that's the idealized type of body. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's whoever doesn't fit into that um, can face a lot of abuse and marginalization. Um, and so I think that I've, I've just been in my academic work, I was looking at, you know, what it means to have this idealized feminine body. And there's a lot more that goes into it just besides thin and fat. You know, it's being thin, um, it's uh, being young, right? So all these yes. kind of anti-aging. Um, having fair skin. Yeah, exactly. And having, not just being thin, right, but having still a little bit of curves or large breasts. Yes, curves um, in the right places. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And even how you move, you know, how women are more constricted in how we move than men. Um, well, you know, man spreading has been something yes. that's been done a lot. And so um, I was reading Sandra Lee Bartke, who is um, a feminist philosopher and theorist, who has written a lot about this. Um, and um, it's very complex, but just to sort of give you a, a little bit of a thumbnail version, she writes about how, how obtaining the normative feminine body is this process of discipline and punishment, Right, so you're constantly having to discipline your body in these punishing regimes to try and get it to conform to the ideal, which I think is pretty much impossible, even for women who are these gorgeous models. Right, they'll eventually age out. Right, yeah. so it's, you know, even for people that adhere to it closely, are never going to forever. Um, so she writes about it as this process of discipline and punishment, and that really influenced me in Dietland. And thinking about dieting as this form of disciplining and punishing your body and trying to get it to conform into this ideal shape. Uh, now, how hard that is, because your body will fight you every step of the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's part of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the construction of the feminine body and the ideal body. I think about this particularly at this time of year when the effects of diet culture and body policing are especially prevalent for women. You know, we're right at the cusp of beach body and bikini body advertisements for summer. And to me, those always feel like such a blatant example of this social conditioning. You know, like, are all 7 billion inhabitants of the world really meant to want to look the same way? Apparently. Um, <laughs> but we're just so removed from the idea of subjectivity and preference and individuality and I mean, what, do you feel like there are some 
main kind of culprits of this where where we especially see this idea of aesthetic homogeneity you know really promoted yeah and I think you know once you get through the warmer weather right so you have more more skin exposed and so it's just like oh my god you know your body's not good enough it's got to be you know get into shape and do all these changes so that people can see more of you on display um you know this kind of panic that they start in the um advertising industry and all that um and I think it's this idea that a lot of you know Americans have that you can just sort of remake your body or remodel it as if it's like a house or something (laughs) um but it's like this project that you could just kind of work on Uh, so I think you know all of that kind of plays into it I mean all these different things but a lot of it is driven I think by people who have a financial interest um you know making money off making women feel anxious about their bodies yeah I mean the weight loss industry as a whole that's kind of its job is to make people feel feel bad. <laughs> right, if people feel good about themselves, they don't make money. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. It's sort of one of the most terrifying but brilliant industries in the world because it's, you know, it's run on the idea that you will fail and then you will turn back to the same exact industry for more help. Um, it just, it blows my mind. I find yeah, it really distressing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's this idea that, but we can achieve that, you know, and it's sad, but people believe it. And then when they don't achieve it, they blame themselves for it. Yeah. And then, yeah, actually we have, we have a segment on the show called Words Matter, where we discuss a lot of loaded or controversial terms within the umbrella of body or fat politics. So things like BBW or fat or curvy, but I'm almost wondering if we can talk a little bit about, it's like a catchphrase, the thin person within. And, you know, it's Uh. definitely something plum experiences. It's something (laughs) fat people are almost programmed to believe that there's literally another human being inside your body. And once the layers of fat are shed, that human will be able to travel and work a dream job and have the epic romance and just live their lives. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on this trope and the potential harm it can cause? Well, I had a lot of fun with that in the novel. Uh, um, this idea of the split self, you know, there's you and then there's the idealized version of you that you assume you've been brainwashed into thinking is going to emerge one day. Yes. Um, and so, so many people put their life on hold until that day comes, um, which, you know, often doesn't. But, um, you know, I think that we have this idea that there are no fat people, that, they're, that everyone's thin, that that's the default person, and that people who are fat just are a thin person with extra weight. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason this kind of thin, that there's this idea that there's a thin person inside every fat person. Because there's like, well, there's no such thing as a fat person. There's <laughs> just a yeah. thin person who gained weight, who could therefore lose that weight. And they need to be saved. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and the whole weight loss industry is, is based on that idea that there's this other version, you know, waiting to be set free. Um, and it's just such a toxic, you know, idea. And, you know, one of the things I write about Dietland is trying to live in the moment and learning how to live for today and not this future time where everything might be perfect. Um, and I think that that can be sort of traumatic to take that step and say, you know, for a fat person, for example, to say, I'm not ever going to be thin, probably. You know, I'm fat, and this is me, and that's it. Yeah. And that can be hard to face, but I think if you can face it, it can be very liberating. Absolutely. I feel like that's 
getting rid of that trope is one of Plum's kind of biggest journeys through the book and realizing that she doesn't have to not live <laughs> while she's fat you know she doesn't have to wait for for things to happen and it is and it is hard I mean I certainly remember having those thoughts as a teenager and a young adult and thinking when I'm thin I will travel when I'm thin I will get married when I'm thin I will lose my virginity when I'm thin it'll all be okay and then we set people up for even more failure because things will never be perfect. That's just not the reality of the world. And I think to to assume that things like pain and heartache will just disappear once you achieve a certain body type just feels really absurd. Yeah, I do wonder about people who do lose lots of weight, you know, if they're disappointed, you know, or, you know, what if the reality measures up to what they thought it would be. Because um, I have read you know, about women who had weight loss surgery, who lost a ton of weight very quickly. And it was very difficult for them because people treated them differently and they got very upset by that. You know, so like, I'm the same person. I just look different. Yes. Um, so I think that if, you know, someone who's fat were to achieve their dream to be thin, that there could be a lot of the difficulties with that that they might not anticipate. When I kind of started going on my own mental re-education journey with, with fat acceptance... <laughs> I just started realizing, you know, it's, and Plum realizes it as, as, as well, that all the anger I had towards myself should really be redirected towards all the people who think it's just okay to, to just shame you and treat you subhuman for the way you look. I mean, how ridiculous is that as a concept when you write it down? But we're just so used to it, I think, that it can be hard to say, this is wrong, you know, and instead just blame yourself. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's hard for women in general to feel entitled to be angry. Um, but I think for fat women, there's this extra idea that, well, you're fat, it's all your fault. You know, you only have yourself to blame kind of thing. I think it's hard to get to that place where you couldn't feel entitled to, to be angry. But I think that's very important, you know, um, step to take. As, of course, Plum, uh, you know, explores in the novel. <laughs> she gets very angry. Yeah, she does. Actually, you know, something she's urged to do by the group of empowering women she ends up meeting are is to is to confront the people who shame her rather than just ignore them in silence and obviously fat people in real life are taught to believe that they should shrink in every way you know they should be as small and as invisible and quiet as possible so to take a stand against those people verbally feels really really radical and I love seeing Plum start to confront people who are staring or mocking her and you know, just asking what are you looking at and eventually physically stomping someone down <laughs> but when it comes to the kind of real world experiences how do you feel about about confronting people you know who who do who do fat shame and who do just think they're entitled to treat you in this way uh I think it's interesting I think there's been some discussion about this in terms of like street harassment right or, yes um of any one of any size of whether to confront someone like that um and I do think you have to be very careful, right? Because it could be very dangerous. Yes. Um, you're obviously not dealing with a nice person. No. Uh, but I have to say that I have confronted someone before. Um, and I just sort of like it had enough. And I just confronted this, you know, fat shamer, the, the complete stranger um, in the street. And um, he just like freaked out. He was like, he didn't say anything. He started apologizing. Um, and I do think that that would probably be a common reaction because people don't expect that people talk back 
they expect them to just absorb um, the shame. And if you do talk back, I think it very, you know, it really unsettles people. Um, and I've, you know, I've seen that, I, you know, of course you have to be careful for the person who might attack you physically or something. But um, I think that, you know, the people who are bullies are often sort of insecure like that. They just want to pick on someone that they don't think will do anything back. And when they do, it's like, oh, no. What do I do now? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so I, you know, I, for me, that was a really liberating experience. Um, and so I do, I do, you know, I wish everyone could have an experience like that where they confront somebody and kind of get that sense of a satisfaction from it. A big part, if not the entirety of Dietland felt to me like a reclamation of so much, you know, a reclamation of the female body, the fat body, things women are shamed for regardless of size not to give away too many spoilers to people who haven't read it, but Plum, you know, comes into this world of really strong, empowered women doing greatly political work, and many of them are part of her ultimate transformation and her journey to self-love, and I'm kind of wondering what, again, the real-world equivalent might be for people, and especially women, who are so tormented and ashamed over their bodies but don't have this legion of badass feminist babes guiding them <laughs> in the flesh. You know, is there... Is this where we turn to bloggers, to body image activists? Do we try to mold alternative media intake for ourselves? How do you even begin? Yeah, you know, one of the most heartbreaking responses I received um, to Dietland, and this has happened more than once, is somebody who's written to me saying, I want to live in this place where Plum goes to live in the novel, Calliope House, with all the, these women that you were just talking about. And they're like, I want to go live there. I want something oh, like wow. that. <laughs> And um, it's sad because it's hard to find, you know, community, I think. Um, and um, I think, you know, in the novel, Plum starts out very, very alone. And then she changes when she meets these other women. And I think it's, you know, it's essential to have a community of people supporting you. Um, as I don't think that she would have changed if she had met these other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's hard. But I think that, you know, the Internet does offer that at least. Because I think most of the or all of the fat activists that I know are people I know through internet. <laughs> I think one of the great things it does is that it can connect you with people from all different places. Um, so it kind of can open up a community um, to people that maybe are in different countries or different states. Um, and so I think that's a great place to look for it. I still think it's great to find in-person community too, though, yes. um, if you can. But sometimes the internet can be a tool to find that. You know, you might not realize that there are some some, you know, activists living near you, you know, that you might want to meet in person. Having other fat friends in real life who are, you know, like fat empowered personalities in your life is hugely valuable. Mm-hmm. I know in Dietland, Plum at one point is saying, you know, she's never wanted a fat friend. She's never had one and she doesn't want one. <laughs> and I think that's that's sort of common as well when especially like when you're a bit younger and you don't want to stand out even more and you don't want to be associated with all the stigma so I know I know I personally always gravitated towards thin friends as a kid and as a teenager for those reasons but as an adult who's tried to be more open-minded to to fat politics to just the diversity of bodies it's been so important to just have these empowered you know feminist radical figures in my life who's bodies I can also relate to yeah I think that's just such an important step and you're saying you know she didn't plum didn't want fat friends when she was younger and I think it's part of it because she didn't want to stand out even more right yes. so one one fat person gets negative attention but two together we get even more that's even more yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, it's unavoidable that you're going to be stared at and like yeah. harassed and I think that um 
you know, I do think a lot of people have, a lot of fat people have so much internalized fat hatred. Um, you know, they don't, they don't really want to be around other fat people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree that it's, it's just it's so important to have other friends who are fat, particularly ones that are, you know, engaging in diet talk all the time, but are just, you know, accept themselves and, um, and you can kind of have a break from, you know, it's, it's a person that understands what you go through. Um, cause I don't think even if you're, you know, your thin friends, how, no matter how well-intentioned they are, they don't know what it's like. Um, and I think it's important to have people who know what that experience is like. That's true. Something that's happening now. I'll give it a little shout out. Um, plus size model Essie Golden is having her, um, golden confidence pool parties. I think she's planning on doing it across the country, but these are basically parties for mostly for, for fat women, um, to come together and just be in a completely shame-free, diet-free environment. And I imagine such a pool party might be a little bit, might seem a little bit wild if you've never come across like an empowered fat person and all of a sudden you're in a room with 70 (laughs) fat people in low-rise bikinis eating, you know, unapologetically eating junk food, like, or whatever it is they want to be doing. But, um, but it's probably like a little, a little flooring if you've never encountered a, you know, a fat positive fat person. But I think those events as well are hugely important and I'm so glad that she's hopefully going to be doing them on a kind of national level. Wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I'm very excited. There's one in New York next month in June. So yeah, I'm sure it's gonna be great if you're in New York. I highly <laughs> urge everyone to go. <laughs> Something I also think is especially important when trying to find your place in all of this is kind of self-reflection and asking yourself the tough questions, asking yourself why fat is bad, why your voice is somehow less than somebody somebody else's. And usually I think when we when we pose the questions in that way, there's not necessarily any logical reasons behind any of it. Um, and I kind of wanted to highlight a quote I found of yours, not from your book, but from your blog post on the UK release of Dietland, if you don't mind me quoting you to you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> You wrote, if you're a woman or if you're a man from a marginalized group, never let anybody make you feel that you're too ambitious. Never let anyone make you feel that you're not entitled to be angry in your work or that your work is too political or that you need to use nicer language to express yourself. (laughs) Never believe anyone when they tell you that your work needs to fit into a box. We need your voices. We need oppositional defiant voices in art and literature. Break those rules of what literature is supposed to be. Question what makes the rules and who what they ultimately serve. After many years of struggle, it's been a thrill for me to connect with readers who needed my voice and who value my words. And I just think that whole paragraph is incredibly lovely and necessary. And it touches upon, you know, pushing, pushing boundaries and talking about the hard stuff. But doing that is hard. Uh, You know, it can be really hard. And I think it puts you at times or makes you feel like you're in a vulnerable position. And I wonder if, there's any practical advice we can give people when it comes to finding the courage to push those limits. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. This, you know, with my book, it was hard to find an agent to represent me. Um, and I, I had to be, I had to stick with it like 18 months. <laughs> um, to, to, I, but I just had confidence that someone out there would take on this book and try and sell it. Um, and I think it's hard. I think that it's, you know, if you're talking about publishing, for example, there are all these gatekeepers um, that try, can try and keep out these more radical voices. Yeah. Um, and that can happen, you know, in any, in any area of life. Um, and so I think it's, you know, I think to just, to fight to make yourself heard, 
Um, and I think that nowadays there are more outlets, you know, for, for spreading, you know, your own writing or whatever it is you do, your photography, your music, whatever way you express yourself, there are at least more outlets for that now, uh, which I think is a good thing. Um, but I think it's, you know, my, my most important advice is just be to stick with it because people are going to try and tear you down and stop you and to just not give up and keep going. Cause there are people who want to hear these things and read these things. Um, you just have to, you have to find those people. Are you able to talk a little bit about Dietland being commissioned for TV or would you rather? Yeah, I can. I can a little, yeah. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. So yeah, I know. That's really all I know. I know that Dietland's, <laughs> you know, commissioned for TV, but I'd love to know what, what that experience has been like so far. Anything you can share? Um, so yeah, so it's an option for TV um, by Marty Noxon, who um, she worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and um, she was a writer for Mad Men, but and she did the show yeah. Unreal that was on last year. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> she's done lots of other things, but um, so she optioned it. There were a lot of people interested, actually, which surprised me. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because we don't ever see people are, are like plum and you know movies and on TV or very yeah. rarely. Especially um, Plum once she's in her like colorful tights and combat boots. And, <laughs> exactly. You know, but what I learned is that there's a lot more outlets on TV now, you know, like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and all these streaming outlets. And it's creating an opportunity for new, more diverse stories about women. And so I think Dietlands um, is part of that, you know, um, that this may not have even been possible like a year ago. Are there any, is there anything you're worried about, about kind of translating the story to to TV? When people first began to approach me about it, my the first thing that came into my mind was like Gwyneth Paltrow in a fat suit. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Shout out to Shallow Hell. <laughs> yes. And Monica and Friends and, yes. uh, you know, Fat Bastards and Austin Powers movies. Um, so that was like my, my nightmare scenario. Yes. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I talked about that with everyone that was interested in it. And they were all, like, immediately, like, that would never happen. You know, to That's worry. Good. That's good uh, to hear. Yeah, so. Um, I think that would be the main fear. If I if I ever had written a book like this and, and it was going to be on film or TV, it would be who's going to be cast as these characters that are supposed to be different. You know, they're not supposed to be Gwyneth Paltrow in a fat suit. <laughs> they're supposed to be an actual representation of a fat, empowered person. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, there aren't really a lot of fat actresses, right, because they never get, I mean, not ones at least we see in films and TV, because they don't get the opportunity to be in anything. (laughs) Um, So it'll be really interesting to see who plays Flom. I don't know anything about that yet. Um, But, you know, it's exciting that she will be, you know, really fat, not like Hollywood version of fat, like Amy Schumer or something. There's all that controversy now with with celebrities like Amy Schumer and, and Lena Dunham being called plus size and all these, you know, just these women who are actually just below the average size really of the American woman which is a size 14 16 and yet anything above a size four is like fat or plus size in Hollywood which is also very strange I know like Hollywood and and then also the fashion industry you know I used to work in women's magazines they have a very skewed reality um and so they start judging people based on their warped sense of what people look like so then we have, you know, yeah, Amy Schumer is plus size, but she's a size six. But in their world, she is plus sized. Yeah, I guess if, if your world is mostly consisting of people who are a size two, then anything above that is going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's what they're comparing it to, you know, yeah. comparing people to. 
Another little segment we like to do on the podcast is a shout out to what I like to call the body positive badass of the week. And this is <laughs> typically a person who you feel is very inspirational, someone tackling issues of body image or fat acceptance or body pause, but who might not be getting the credit you think they deserve. And I'm wondering if there's anyone you'd like to put a spotlight on. Um, well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I don't know if that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Because <laughs> I have a feeling most of the people I would highlight are people that you know already. Um, but I wanted to talk about a book um, that's an anthology that has many different women's voices in it. Um, and people who have really been into fat activism will probably know this book. But I bet most of your listeners won't. Um, it's called Shadow on a Tightrope, uh, okay. Writings by Women on Fat Oppression. And it's from 1983, um, and it's edited by Lisa Schoenfielder. And it's actually out of print, but there are a lot of copies available online used. Um, and this, I wanted to just highlight this because it's, you know, it's more than 30 years old. But I think it's a great example that the kind of fat activism that we're doing now has roots, you know. In, yes, in, it's not necessarily you know. new. Right, exactly. And I think if you read this book, you know, some parts of it would seem dated now, but um, you know, there are essays that are just, they're really angry and they're radical and they're searing. And, you know, some of them are quite sad too, um, fat women talking about their lives. Um, but I think it has, there's just so much to learn, I think, from activists that have come before and, and how they were addressing issues. And also it's a little bit depressing, I think, to see some of the issues that well, unfortunately we still have to deal with. Um, but I just wanted to highlight something, I think, from an earlier generation of activists. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that we're part of a longer history. Definitely. I mentioned this on the first podcast that we did, which was that even in the in the 60s, there was a fatten in Central Park here in New York where <laughs> people who were fat positive got got together in the park. And I think what they did was burn pictures of Twiggy while, you know, really apologetically <laughs> eating junk food and just anything that their hearts desired. And I think for the 60s, that's that's incredibly radical as well. This was way before body pause was a buzzword. So I, I definitely agree these things have roots and acknowledging those roots and then being able to analyze how things have changed and how they haven't and how we can be doing more all comes naturally once you do. Exactly, yeah. So I think that I kind of am attracted to that angrier writing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to highlight that shadow on a tightrope. That's great. We need to, you know, if we want people to think of fat and to accept fat, we need to show what it looks like to live that way because to a lot of people it's unimaginable. So that's one thing I wanted to do with the novel. Fiction can do that. You know, it can show you what's possible, the kind of what if, you know, what if I stopped hating myself, what would that look like? Um, we need to kind of imagine it before it can happen. You know, if something's unimaginable, I don't think it could happen. That's very true. I think fiction can do that. Books like Dietland can do that, where you're kind of left wondering, well, you know, why, why can't I do this too? Why can't I start living now? Why can't I be okay as I am? And asking yourselves those questions and realizing that, you actually can. <laughs> exactly. And seeing other people, you know, um, and there's so many great people on social media that do that as well, you know, not just in books, but just to set that example. I think that's so important to see. Thank you for putting a depiction like that out into the world, because like I said, it's definitely one of the first times I've seen it in fiction. Hopefully there will be more, but I think for a lot of people, Dietland has been and will continue to be just a very necessary stepping stone. Oh, thank you. <laughs> of course. I mean, thank you for being on the podcast and for 
for your words, for your work. It's it's hugely inspirational. You know, I I feel like I I'm surrounded by fat acceptance literature a lot, but this just felt kind of just like it, it's had the potential to be relatable to both people in and outside that bubble, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Oh, well, thank you. No, I really enjoyed chatting with you. It's been great. Thank you. And, you know, if people want to find you, if they want to keep up to date with your work and the things you're doing, what's kind of the best way? <laughs> um, they go to my website. So, Saray, my first name is spelled S-A-R-A-I, walker.com. And I have links to all my, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on there. So, I'm all over the internet. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Saray. That was awesome. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you guys so much for listening. This episode was produced by Sarah Barrett with editorial oversight by Anna Parsons and music by Patty McClave. As always, you can find the podcast on our Rad Podcast Network, Acast, or subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. If ever you have any questions or topics you'd love us to discuss, please email at thebodcast at bustle.com. Thanks again. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.